I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll... Just check the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. My name is Jeff, and with me today is the girthy, toad-faced demon god himself, Hoy. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us this week is none other than the game designer behind Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, Jeffrey Talanian. Greetings, true believers. (laughs) Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. So it's awesome having you on here. And our episode today is on Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea. So the connection is pretty self-evident. But uh, starting off, uh, we'll go ahead and ask you our normal questions. Sure. Uh, how did you get into gaming? And how did you discover the Appendix N? Uh, well, uh, I first got into gaming when um, I was in the fifth grade, which was about in 1981. Um, it was during... Um, recess at school i believe it was in the winter so it was like an indoor recess and one of my friends brought in this box this game called dungeons and dragons and he introduced myself and another friend to it and we thought it was so fantastic that immediately after school we went to his house and continued playing which was playing uh the keep on the borderlands and so then immediately thereafter i was begging my parents to that i needed this game and uh, so they ordered it. I found it. It was in the Sears catalog and ordered it from the Sears catalog. And I got the Holmes basic box set. And that's how I um, started my, uh, you know, in my path to gaming. It's great. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Just before this, we had our first virtual book club recording where we had uh, one of our patrons on and we were discussing the book with, with, with that patron. And we were talking about how at least half of our guests started with the Home basic box set. Yeah, it uh, seems that way. <laughs> You're keeping that trend going. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and again, I do think that there's something about the homes um, that is sort of, there's so much white space in there that it really hooks into your imagination. And that's not to knock uh, uh, BX, which I think is phenomenal, or Beckme. Um, but I think by the time that Beckme has rolled around, it's been much more of um, an institutional thing, whereas it's, it's, you can still see that Holmes was sort of still feeling their way through what is this thing that is Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Uh, well, I can't really speak to that too much from my own experience because for me, I went straight from Holmes to AD&D. So I sort of skipped the other forms of basic that, that followed. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and, you know, in looking upon it, like my attitude back in the 80s when I was a teenager, I sort of frowned upon it as sort of like, especially the, um, the, the red uh, box that is sort of my, more like a child's version of D&D. And then right, I was right. playing, you know, the grown-up version of D&D. Right, like D&D. It says advanced right there, right? Right, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, there was that confusion, and I, and I do bring it up from time to time. It's like, well, when Expert came out, which was, I guess, right around 1981, it was like, well, is Expert more advanced than advanced, or is it less advanced than advanced? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Too many but, adjectives. Right, right. And, and, uh, and clearly from... Uh, your game itself, uh, Advance, is really where your heart seems to lie, right? Because your game is is so much, I mean, it's very specific, but has a lot of callbacks to Advanced. Sure, yeah. And I also have a lot of Holmes influence in there, too. Uh, basically, like the way um, my um, 
uh, initiative system works and how we place importance on uh, the dexterity attribute for uh, resolving different things with initiative. Uh, the use of um, the creation of scrolls for uh, magic using characters at low levels. Uh, there's a lot of Holmes types, uh, uh, Holmes uh, influence on my uh, game design philosophies that I really um, appreciated the direction that, that he took um, our favorite game. Mm-hmm. And, and during this process, were you already reading fantasy fiction? Did you become aware of Appendix N? How, you know, how did you so much latch on to the stuff that then became, you know, AS and SH in terms of, you know, hyper, uh, um, Robert E. Howard, et cetera. Well, when I was, when I was a kid, um, my, I shared a bedroom with my two brothers and then my, my dad built like a basement pad for my oldest brother who was nine years older than me. So he had sort of like that Greg Brady pad down, down <laughs> in the basement and, um, outside of his room, he had this, uh, bookshelf where he had, where my brother had all these, uh, science fiction and fantasy books. So that's where I was, uh, uh, discovered like, um, Isaac Asimov and Tolkien and Robert E. Howard and all these different, uh, and a lot of weird stuff too, like the Contiki, the voyage, like across the Pacific, like all these different weird stuff. I read, remember like, you know, perusing Stalingrad and all these different types of books that were on that shelf. And um, so, um, like I mentioned earlier, I went straight from Holmes' basic box set to, um, to AD&D. I had a paper out at the time. And um, so the first hardback book that I bought of AD&D was the Dungeon Master's Guide. So I couldn't afford the player's handbook for quite some time. One of the other neighborhood kids had it. So I was basically running D&D for my, na- for my neighborhood friends using the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Holmes box set. And um, <laughs> so it was going through that book for, uh, for years that I, you know, of course I stumbled upon the appendix and, 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 dis- and then discovered authors that I hadn't heard of before. Um, some of those authors were readily available to me at the, at the at Walden Books at the mall. Others were not. I had to find them at uh, various used bookstores and stuff like that. Uh, but I would say without Appendix N that I would not have discovered Jack Vance, uh, maybe not Fritz Leiber. Um, I had already been turned on to, uh, you know, like I said, Tolkien and Howard and even Michael Moorcock. Um, but there were definitely some authors that I discovered through that appendix that, you know, just that um, further deepened my appreciation and understanding of all the source material that, that's gone into this great hobby. Right, right. And, and the other two big influences uh, on you that are obvious would be Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. And how did you come to those two writers? Uh, well, it's funny because I I wasn't really I had heard of Lovecraft, but I had never read any Lovecraft until my friend Bob, uh, who we were gaming with, uh, wanted to run Call of Cthulhu. So I was in, actually introduced to Lovecraft through playing Call of Cthulhu first, and once I started to play that, I wanted to read his fiction. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that was in a, around 1985, around there. Um, like I said, Howard was much earlier for me. I was a little kid reading Howard. I probably wasn't understanding half of what I was reading. And I, it was probably those Frank Frazetta covers that sure. drew me in that really like, wow, this has to be awesome. So I was sucked in by, by, um, by that as well. Um, but um, honestly, Clark Ashton Smith was one that I came to um, later in life. I'd say uh, I was probably in my early 30s when I started to um, read some of his stuff. I think I read 
one of his short stories in a, in a horror anthology. And I liked it so much that I began to seek out some of his other works, which, you know, of course, led me to all the Hyperborea stories. Mm -hmm. And that's a great segue into talking about our episode and specifically which edition of the book we're working with. Uh, Jeffrey, which version of the book are you working with today? Well, um, the one that I have by me here, I guess, I don't know if you're, this is going to be an audio, right? So your viewers aren't going to see what I'm holding up. Okay. But it is the, um, the, the, the book of Hyperborea edited by Will Murray, which was published by uh, Necromonicon Press. Very cool. Very cool. That's, I, think Andy I also had have, uh, you know, I have the complete um, by my side here, the Nightshade. Uh, this is, these are the complete works of Clark Ashton Smith, all his uh, fiction collected in um, five different volumes. So it's a, uh, it's nice to see uh, all the Hyperborea stories sort of interspersed between all the, the horror stories or the Zothique stories and everything else. Right. I've it, also got the five volume collection and I would, I would love to one day work my way through that. I bet that's a really fun and rewarding way to read his works. Oh, it sure is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I think Andy had the, uh, our previous uh, Clark Ashton Smith guest had the Necronomicon uh, press version of Zothique. And, yes. um, uh, and it's interesting. We we're talking also about how uh, the, the stories were, were sequenced or chosen to be read. Obviously, if you're reading in the, the Nightshade one, you're, it's combined with all of his other fiction. It's more or less chronological order. Right. And whereas, uh, you know, uh, Lynn Carter was quite at pains to uh, set uh, what he thought was his preferred reading order in the books that we're reading, Jeff, right? Which is... I think, right. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, Lynn Carter definitely did that. He... Just, he, he um, and I guess most Clark Ashton Smith scholars uh, pretty much unanimously agree that uh, that Carter did a good job at uh, creating a chronological order of them. But, uh, you know, myself and I think a lot of other people enjoy reading them in the order that Smith wrote them because you could sort of, it's almost like, you know, I, I think I got this one from Robert E. Howard. It's almost like sharing, um, sharing stories by the campfire. Mm-hmm. And your stories aren't going to go in some like specific A through Z chronological order. You're going to skip around in different times and tell different stories about different periods, whatever your, your topic is. So it's kind of cool reading them in the order that um, that Smith uh, wrote them. Um, uh, actually, what's interesting um, is that Smith wrote most of these stories in a three or four year period. And there was almost like a 20 year gap uh, when he uh, by the time that he wrote the last one, sort of closing the door on um, the the Hyperborean uh, mythos, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And um, Jeff, actually, we should have to mention the ones that we're reading, right? So you are reading the same one as I am? Yes, we're both reading the 1971 Ballantine Adult Fantasy Collection with this Bill Martin cover. And what's interesting is Bill Martin as an artist is only credited as having done this cover, at least on the Internet Speculative Fiction database. I'm not aware of him having done any more fantasy paperback covers, but the cover is cool. Like it looks very much like it, like it's ripped right out of Labyrinth Lord. It looks yeah. very OSR. Yeah, and, and specifically Labyrinth Lord. No other OSR game. It really feels like, <laughs> like Labyrinth Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, cover for the Necromonicon version is done by Robert Knox. Okay. And it's pretty wild as well. It's, you know, it's, it has this uh, sorcerer in the middle here and it's all this weird stuff going on. On the back, you have a Clark Ashton Smith, one of his own illustrations of Sathagua. Nice. Cool. (laughs) That's really nice. 
All right, and before we head into the library, we're going to quickly take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Oleaginous. Oleaginous. And oleaginous is found on page 39 of my collection. And what happens here is we've been hanging out with uh, Sathagwa here, and we have this sentence. The entity gave its oleaginous chuckle. And oleaginous means rich in, covered with, or producing oil, oily, or greasy. So that's a nice, juicy, Hygaxian word. Nice. Talanian, do you have a word you would like to contribute? Yeah, I had one that I looked up earlier when I was going through some of my uh, favorite Clark Ashton Smith stories. So it's not a Gygaxian word, but of course it falls under those uh, sort of parameters. And the word, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is haruspissations. So what is haruspissations? Uh, so I'll read it to you how it's used in the context. His, his most cunning horoscopes were put to naught. His familiars were silent or answered him equivocally. In confusion was amid all his geomancies and hydromancies and haruspissations. So um, haruspissations is basically a form of sorcery that you're, uh, it's a combination of invoking, uh, looking at lightning and things in the skies for divine answers and things. And it also has to do with when they make some type of uh, human or animal sacrifice, and you see uh, the, the reading the entrails of your sacrifice to see what you know, you know what the gods wish you to know. That's <laughs> <a> great word. <laughs> <laughs> and then our, our book club guest had a word, which, right, which was uh, uh, <laughs> anthropophagy, anthropophagy, which means basically cannibalism. Which I think is a, yes. uh, one of the one of your module titles. If I'm correct, that's correct. It's yeah. uh, it's it's basically Greek for man eater. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> So heading on into the library at this point, uh, Talanian, what do you think of the Hyperborea stories? Oh, I love them. Uh, you know, they one of the big things about um, Clark Ashton Smith is, um, you know, he has these different, you could look at him uh, definitely as a world builder, which, which attracts us all to his fiction as uh, dungeon masters, game masters, whatever. Because the because the worlds that he creates are so rich and um, the settings are so evocative of these smells and colors and textures and everything else, and he has such a lyrical uh, prose poetic style that he uh, employs in all his writings, but he also employs um, some very definite uh, differences in his various um, cycles that he writes. Now the Hyperborea stories, those are the most that that were, those were the most inspired by his uh, friendship with H.P. Lovecraft. So there is a lot of the elements of cosmic horror in there. Uh, in fact, uh, Sathagwa, as uh, as many people know, uh, was created by Clark Ashton Smith, but as far as published form goes, uh, love it was in a he was in a. The, the God was in a Lovecraft story first that was published just because, you know, uh, Smith uh, suffered a lot of rejections before or in revisions before he would be able to get something published. But anyway, getting back to my main point about the different tones of his works, um, with the Hyperborea cycle, uh, Smith employed this sort of sardonic, cynical humor that he employed in a lot of it that was... Uh, 
it wasn't so much appreciated by the editors of the 30s. They didn't quite get him or get it. Mm-hmm. And um, so they really liked his Zothique tales because they were bleak and dark. It was the, uh, it was, you know, it was, you could say it was a precursor to Vance's dying son stuff, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of end of the world, mm-hmm. uh, sure. f- far flung future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Hyperborea tales were something else. And so uh, Smith ultimately gave up on them after, uh, after multiple rejections. I mean, he did get, each, uh, he did get uh, a handful of them published. Um, but they came to be more appreciated in later years when they were collected. And, uh, but, you know, he was amongst the most, uh, celebrated of the weird tales, uh, authors. I think he had over 50 of his short stories that were published in weird tales back in the day. So, uh, you know, as far as, uh, uh, many of the other pulp era authors go, he's right up there amongst the, uh, the most published, mm-hmm. but the Hyperborea tales just were not readily accepted. Um, but I love these, these stories. Uh, you know, each one has, uh, a different sort of, you know, focal point character or theme that's going on. Uh, they, there's, they're just, you know, the, the lyrical style and quality of them is just like unparalleled to me. The, the, the uh, yeah, the Hyperborea tales, they really, you know, really grabbed my attention. Of course, they were a huge influence on what I do uh, mm. now with my game. Now, do you feel yeah, that- what's really kind of uh, cool about the language is I feel like, you know, the, the, like, sure, there's, it's, it's a lot to, it's a lot to read. You know, the, the prose is very purple in that sense. Uh, lots of, lots of uh, big words, but I feel like it, it kind of adds a nice decadent element to the writing. It kind of makes it feel like it really is this very special kind of bizarre otherworldly place where yeah. it, can, it really can kind of get in the way of the narrative flow with some writers, you know, having just read a merits, the moon pool, I feel like it really, that kind of, that kind of prose, it really struggled. I struggled with reading that kind of prose in the, in the moon pool. It didn't quite seem to kind of jive with the universe in which she was writing. Cause really it was our universe. Uh, it's, it's, it's people who were living in contemporary time at, at, um, at the point in which the story was written, but this is in a completely other world, just like how I think Jack Vance can really kind of get away with those, with, with, with that kind of vocabulary and that kind sure. of mm-hmm. when writing the dying earth stories, because it really is this kind of like rich, decadent, otherworldly universe. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it sort of uh, lends an authenticity to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you both mentioned that he, and, and I think it's pretty clear that he did influence Vance um, and probably Fritz library to a certain extent. Um, do we do we feel like though he was also taking from say Lord Dunsany? I feel like there's a, a like some of the gods of Pagana stuff might have influenced you know his creation of these sort of weird gods that appear in the Hyperborea and, and the Zithic stories. Um, I would say that more applies to Lovecraft than to Smith. I mm-hmm. think that Smith, um, I think that Smith was uh, definitely uh, would would he like his the way he approached his different gods and old ones, outer worldly beings was uh, they were a little bit more vocal and in communication with their supplicants. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it was uh, uh, you, you don't really see that so much with Lovecraft, the way he employs. Sure. Sure. You know, Sagwa, Sagwa similar... actually has a personality unlike. Right. And, and, a, and, and a, a humorous personality, especially if you read like the seven geezes, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, stuff like that. Um, 
so I think that I think Dunsany, of course, has a had a huge influence on a lot of writers, you know, and just as just like Poe did. And um, but, you know, it's really hard to gauge, I think, you know, how much of that affected someone like Smith. I think that, you know, that Smith and Lovecraft, like Lovecraft came to appreciate Smith through Smith's poetry mm-hmm. because Smith was writing almost like, you know, cosmic horror poetry. Right, right. And and Lovecraft was amongst his, those who was, was sort of a fan of his that was encouraging him to get into the prose. And so Smith did get into more prose fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he started to, you know, write these stories and submit them, them to the pulps to Farnsworth Wright and, you know, the editor of Weird Tales. And Wright didn't, Wright wasn't so much into it. And it's funny because Lovecraft, when Lovecraft said, you know, you should really look at this guy and take, give it, give him a second chance. And then suddenly Farnsworth Wright is coming back to Smith and saying like, okay, if you make, if you make these edits, I, you know, I'll, I'll publish your work. Mm -hmm. And so Smith was at a point in his life where he was taking care of his elderly parents and he couldn't afford to, you know, say like, you cannot, you cannot, uh, you know, alter my art. Uh, this, uh, yeah, he did it. He, he conformed to what they wanted, but, he, but fortunately for uh, the nightshade collection that we talked about, and even like this um, Necromonicon press book, the original uh, manuscripts were retained in, in most oh. cases. So we have like Smith's notes on the things that he was cutting and the things that you could see where it had upset him that he wasn't happy about making the cuts, but he did it anyway. And um, so he did it to make ends meet, to take care of his parents. Whereas Lovecraft was the kind of guy that he was like, basically like, screw you. This is, this is what I do. And I, right. I'm not going to bend to anybody's will. Right. Right. And, and uh, are the versions that you and I read, the ones that were edited for weird tales or the ones that were most, original? most likely, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was hard. Cause I think a lot of these manuscripts were not rediscovered until basically just around the time of the nightshade book, or I guess the hyper, the Necronomicon press books. So they weren't really available um, for public consumption until much later until like the seventies, I guess, mid seventies around that, that time period. And I think it's still an, still an ongoing process. I think, I think even in the nightshade ones, in some cases they have the typescripts that came back from weird, weird tales with some of his notes. And, and so there's not an actual original script from Clark Ash and Smith necessarily. It's his right. notes on his notes on their notes in some cases. Like Hyperborea in a lot of ways is pre Nawan. Like looking at the the tale of Satampra Zeros, yeah. you know, just like reading the story of these thieves and that whole thing where the, he has uh, he has like what is it two coins so he can buy either a, like a loaf of bread to like satisfy his body or for wine, <laughs> wine to satisfy his soul. Wine. He chooses the wine, <laughs> and he chooses the wine, and then they go on their like crazy drunken adventure. But that's- and- and they get to that big door that they can't open, so they drink some more wine to push right, their way to through. fortify their spirits, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it really does feel like Fafford and the Grey Mouser, like the like the echoes of Fafford and Grey Mouser. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the humor that I was referring to earlier that, that Smith applies to a lot of these Hyperborea tales that he doesn't necessarily apply to his uh, different horror tales or even 
well, to some degree, the Zothique, but not so much. Right, and right. Uh, it stuff's just funny because, you know, you got these two guys that have broken down on their luck, but they're going to spend their last money on wine instead of right. food to go on this, you know, cross-country adventure. Right, right. And I think that is an interesting point of differentiation between the so-called Weird Tales Big Three because uh, there's definitely no humor in Lovecraft as much as I like his work. And then they allude to humor in Robert E. Howard's stories, but I never find any stories actually humorous. So, <laughs> right. One of the things I wanted to read to you guys was something that um, – that, uh, Smith wrote in a letter to Lovecraft when he was talking about his style with these, di- you know, the different types of uh, uh, cycles that he wrote, like Hyperborea. And he mm-hmm. said, the problem of style in writing is certainly fascinating and profound. I find it highly important when I begin a tale to establish at once what might be called the appropriate tone. If this is clearly determined at the start, I seldom have much difficulty in maintaining it. But if it isn't, there's likely to be trouble. So he's, you know, he's, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to capture whatever tone or spirit, like, you know, you, you referenced the tale of Satampra Zeros and, uh, you know, the, the humor that he captures right away with that. And, you know, this thief who lost his friend and he lost his arm and his adventure. Totally. Now hearing that, that makes me wonder, and I, I should have looked this up beforehand, do you guys know chronologically which of these Hyperborea tales was the first that he wrote? That is the one, that is it. So what's fascinating is to add on to that is that um, the last tale that he wrote, the theft of the thirty nine girdles, also starred Satampa Zeros. But that was the that was the story that I told you that uh, Smith wrote about twenty years after the other stories. Interesting. And, and it's you know him and this thief girl that he's in love with are breaking into this. Uh, uh, temple where she used to be, and it's the temple of the virgins. But they're not really virgins; they're more like whores because they're because they're sent out to these different rich people who live in the city, and they they have these golden girdles that are studded with all these gems and valuables. So they so they you know they they meet this alchemist, and they sort of contrive this method to uh, break into this uh, heavily guarded temple and steal the golden girdles. It's just it's a great story, mm-hmm. and it's a great way for Smith to end the cycle. Because totally. it started with Satampa and it ends with him. The story mm-hmm. of a thief. Cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Right. I also really like that, you know, the, the, the that character shows up in two stories. But other than that one character who's in two stories, the only character who's kind of consistent throughout is Sathogwa. And in right. a weird way, like, that's kind of the main character of the Hyperborea stories in a lot of ways. You can say that, too. But, you could, but I, I look at another thing, too, that... Um, the coming of the of the worm, the white worm, mm-hmm. the the coming ice age, which is supposed to be, so Hyperborea is supposed to be sort of a Pleistocene sort of epic, and the coming of the ice age and the advancement of the glacier, the the setting itself is almost like a recurring character because mm-hmm. this 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 oncoming doom that's explored. You have some stories in that in which take place, you know. As this thing is happening, you have other stories that take place when these uh, events are being foretold by uh, some type of uh, Sybil. Right. And it's an interesting bookend to have the Zothique, which is, uh, as you say, it's a dying earth. It's the end of time. And Hyperborea, which happens in our sort of the deep past. But even then, Hyperborea, even though it's in the deep past, is also at the end of an age. It's about, as you say, it's about to be the end of a world because this glacier is advancing. And not only is this glacier advancing... There is a, a malign intelligence that's imbued right. in there, in that story and in the um, 
the one, the ice demon where the glaciers. Oh yeah. Death, yeah. And, um, and the ice demon also is also a story that's very much like um, a D and D story. I guess we'll take, we'll talk about that a little it's bit. It's kind of like a tales from the, the crypt story where you think about it too. It's kind of like one of those, you know, be careful what you wish for type of stories. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think this is a great time to go ahead and transition over to that. So feel free to talk all the D and D stuff you want. All right, right. So again, I was surprised because we tend to think of Robert E. Howard, um, and maybe to a certain extent, Tolkien is sort of sort of the, the the pole stars of what D and D is, or maybe also Liber. But I was surprised because again, when I think of Clark Ashton Smith as more someone who's more working with tone poems and moods, but here we have like, literally examples of uh, you know D and D adventures. We have the uh, the door to Saturn is could be considered one. The ice demon could be considered one. The Satan Prozeros. Uh, Satan Prozeros is clearly a D&D thief. He's not a, he's not Conan who happens to steal, right? He's a warrior, but happens to steal. This is clearly a guy who crawls through, you know, crawls through holes, you know, sure. has, has schemes. Um, and it's funny too, because he's an overweight thief, you know, right. and they, they talk about that a lot that he's, you know, that he can't fit through a certain spot or whatever. Right, right, he's out right, of breath. Right. Which is why he, he, he takes on Vixila, who is the original temple prostitute who then becomes his assistant thief. And, and right. she, and she levels up too, right? Because at first she's not very good at it, but then she becomes very good at climbing through holes and, and sure. working the schemes with him. Um, so that is very much like um, uh, there's a D&D thief right there in the Ice Demon. It's like a, as you say, it's a, a Tales from the Crypt, but it's also like the, a D&D adventure gone wrong. It's a TPK, basically. Right, right. right. With two jewelers and, and the hunter. Where the um, greed overcomes any right. sort of common sense. Right, right. And they even, you know, like a lot of classic D&D adventures, the, th- the hunter gets the rumor from his older brother who was out on the glacier, who was also then killed by polar bear. Right. Uh, and, and then and then uh, Abon, the, uh, Abon or Ibon in the door of Saturn and him, him and his um, would-be persecutor, Morgi, escape through this door to Saturn and then they have to throw in with each other uh, right. and, one, and one's a wizard and one could be considered a cleric, a druid, maybe. A druid or cleric. And then, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, someone's insane lengths to get to, to catch his, his quarry, you know, right, to, right. It, you know, <laughs> jump through a, 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 a dimensional portal to another world and still thinks he's going to arrest him. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> totally. And also, Speaking of him potentially being a cleric or a druid, you know, this is definitely kind of my my hallmark of the things I like to talk about is, you know, it says that Morgi is the high priest of the goddess Yaoundé, who's like the elk goddess. Mm-hmm. But then they talk about how Abon was his chief rival in wizardry. So <laughs> although he's the high priest of this god, he's a wizard. Right. <laughs> right. He's not a cleric. Right. But one thing I would love to ask you, Jeffrey is one of the kind of common ways we start this section of the episode is asking why you think this book was included in the Appendix N. However, Clark Ashton Smith is not included in the Appendix N. And I'm curious, do you think that was an accidental oversight or an intentional omission? Um, I guess I would say neither, because I think that at that time, I think Gary was... Uh, Maybe he was yet to discover or he hadn't read that much of Clark Ashton Smith. I know that Rob Koontz was really heavily into Clark Ashton Smith. So it may just been one of those things that either he it was it may have been an oversight or it may just be it been one of those things where it just wasn't one of those authors that he um, was 
as familiar with as he was some of the other ones that he did include in hmm. Appendix N. Interesting. That's my opinion. There's probably people out there that know better than I on that topic. Sure. These are all just theories for the sake of fun funsies. Uh, Hoy, what's your theory on that? Um, I mean, we have stated a couple uh, theories. Um, one is, you know, although, um, you know, a lot of the other swords and sorcery fiction is, you know, for lack of a better word, adult, the, the Clark Ashton Smith stuff is clearly into the realm of decadence, right? And so is that a recommendation that you want to make for what's nominally a fam- family game? Is that something that Gary was comfortable with? I believe he was either a Jehovah's Witness or a Catholic, uh, so he was, you know, a, a pra- you know, a practitioner, you know, practicing religion, and maybe this is something he just wasn't comfortable with. Um, again, I don't have any specific evidence for that, but I could see that in tone, it's still, although it's very D and D, in tone, it's still significantly different than a lot of the other appendix and stuff. So that's that. Zothique especially is very, very decadent and very, uh, very perverse. And like it wears its perversion kind of proudly at the forefront, which is one of the things that I kind of love about it. But also in Hyperborea, all of the stories kind of lack a uh, a character, not all of the stories, but many of the stories lack a character agency. And all of these characters are kind of acting against their own will, which is leading them towards their own death. And I wonder if Gary did read these, but didn't want to include them because he was afraid it was going to give people the wrong impression of what an adventure should look like. Because if you get a group of people who sit down and immediately their player agency is taken away from them and they're led on a railroad to their own death, then that's that's not the kind of adventure that I think Gary really wanted people to be running. He wanted Fafford and the Grey Master and Conan. Sure, yeah. I mean, you... You know, you want to have those um, the the opportunity to play a heroic character that can take a course of action that can make a difference in the campaign. But the thing that I love about Smith's stories um, in his various cycles, whether you're talking about um, Poseidonus or Hyperborea or or Zothique, is setting itself becomes an antagonist. Mm-hmm. So it's, so it's, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, I'm reluctant to say man versus nature because nature is so f- bizarre in any <laughs> Clark Ashton Smith story. It's, it's, but it, that, I don't know, you get my meaning, right? <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, absolutely. It's right there in the ice demon. The glacier itself seems to have a sort of malign intelligence. And then when they go through the door to Saturn, the, the, the setting is just even more alien than the Hyperborea already is. Um, which very much fits with the idea of sort of a living dungeon, right? A dungeon that has a sort of uh, an ethos, if, sure. if not an actual consciousness. And so that I think uh, that's, a, that's very well taken. I think that's a very, a very interesting idea. And then obviously when the seven geeses, he's, he's traveling through this sort of mythic underworld. Right. And, and there's elements of that. Um, and then later on, also in the story, uh, the weird of a, uh, uh, not to, um, Testament of Athamas, Yes, when when the city gets overtaken by the jungle after the people abandon it, right? Right. And, and this creature is maybe the agent of that jungle, right? <laughs> right. So now, astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea is both a game and a setting. Correct. Sorry, my cat just knocked over a bag full of stuff. <laughs> now, how much of your Hyperborea is taken from this Hyperborea versus? 
the the Conan Hyperborean age or or sorry Hyborian age. Um, yeah, how much influence are you taking directly from this? Um, it's a little bit of everything, um, but it's also the uh, the the Greek mythology from which all this stuff is sourced from. The the uh, the word Hyperborea in the old Greek language literally means beyond the north wind. So in the uh, in the old Greek religion, um, the Hy- Hyperborea was this land beyond the north wind and beyond these mountains. This was this sort of paradise where people uh, lived a long time, and um, Apollo was their main god. And um, so most of the most of the original Greek stories about Hyperborea are unfortunately lost to the ages but we have a lot of references to them by uh, various Greek scholars over the years, um, Herodotus, Pindar, a uh, whole bunch. Um, so I drew some influence from some of that stuff for my game. I obviously drew a lot from Clark Ashton Smith, um, Robert E. Howard's, um, his, I, I was really inspired by the, the sort of the physical characteristics of the Hyperboreans as he described them in, in the Hyborean age. So sort of this tall, gaunt, pale skinned uh, um, sorcerer kings. Um, and um, so, but, you know, for my Hyperborea, I, you know, you can also say that I have sort of my own little appendix and even though I never really uh, directly state it. Uh, the works of authors such as uh, Michael Moorcock, um, um, Carl Edward Wagner, uh, of course, Fritz Leiber and Jack Vance, um, even, you know, some weird Lost World stuff by, like, say, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, so although my setting is mostly inspired by the fiction of Smith and, you know, the, uh, the cosmic horror entities of Lovecraft that Lovecraft and Smith shared, and then the heroic action of, say, a Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber, it's really a mix of, of many elements. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, it's presented, the setting in my game is sort of presented uh, with a lot of brevity, you could say, because I like to provide uh, ample room for the individual referees out there to say, okay, it's got this in it, I'm going to expand on this and create my own thing. It has a few little uh, weird sci-fi elements to it, sort of the way Carl Edward Wagner does in his uh, Kane stories. Some people might want to expand on that. So it um, sort of creates a foundation from which uh, capable referees can uh, can build their own Hyperborea. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by the actual world itself because it's, it's quite broad, but it's still constrained. It's this hexagonal North Pole, essentially, right? Continent, a lost continent. Yeah. Um, what led you to sort of decide that was the right scope for for this world? Well, you could say that that was you know where I was really inspired by the Zothique tales because mm-hmm. I because Zothique is sort of almost like a flat Earth setting. There's right. an edge of the world, and so right. I thought it would be really cool to have an edge of the world type of uh, setting mm-hmm. in which uh, so that going beyond the North Wind in um, in what we call Old Earth when you cross that veil that you're going to this uh, far-flung realm that has this sort of uh, melting pot of various cultures that that thrive and maybe not so thrive there. Mm -hmm. And um, specifically have Vikings and Inuit in there. Yeah, yeah. That's really fascinating. And then some, you know, mythical races like the native Hyperboreans themselves. Um, 
the uh, the Ixians are sort of inspired by like Robert E. Howard Stygians. We have Amazons, we have Atlanteans. Um, so there's you know different types of cultures that are involved. Mm-hmm. And and um, the, in terms of sort of broad, but just kind of keeping it relatively contained, is just is this just for the consistency of tone? Is that what you were looking for in terms in terms of that? Um, I mean, it's quite still what several thousand miles wide, but it's not it's not a round Earth. It's not an infinite. Right, right. I mean, it's a pretty large uh, central continent. So, and there are a lot of places to explore. And it's also, uh, you know, the the central portion of that continent is gripped in glacial ice. Uh, so it makes it more um, treacherous to just make these cross continent journeys. It's it's almost impossible uh, without you know probably sorcerous means. Mm-hmm. And so. And then you have these diff- different various island groups that are at the periphery beyond the, uh, uh, the ocean. Um, so, and then there's actually we have a floating island where this, uh, these, these lost Amazon tribes uh, dwell. So that's, it's, you can almost look at it as a moon, but it's like a, like a remnant that's hang- that's, that could only be bridged because it's you know, the void of space to mm-hmm. get to it. It can only be bridged by means of sorcery or weird science fiction technology right. so this is where it gets a little bit burrowsian a little bit like sure pellucidar or something like that, that yeah area. yeah yeah sure but cool. even in hyperborea we, we refer to a floating citadel at one point because on um on page 81 here in the coming of the white worm when that wizard appears he says we serve the outer one whose name is relim shikorth he has come forth in his floating citadel the out the ice mountain yakileth so yeah. he, isn't it like a floating ice mountain well, it's it's a, it's a glacier. It's a glacier. It's like an iceberg. It's a yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a hunk of it's a it's this, but it's but it's almost like a floating fortress. It's not floating in space. It's floating on the ocean. Oh, yeah. But it also has this aura that it sort of projects out that causes it to like freeze the the lands it passes by, and then they all freeze right. Exactly. And it's like a supernatural freezing because right. when they lit that boat on fire that had all those frozen men on it, the boat burned <laughs> to the ground, and then the but the but the different. Uh, the captain and the yeah, the different right. rowers and whatnot was still frozen, frozen in, frozen in, in place, the, in yeah. frozen in place. Yeah. yeah. And that was one thing while reading that, that was kind of sparking my imagination. Because one of the things I love to do when I read these stories is imagine how I can bring these into my games today. And there's that moment where our protagonist is offered to go up and join them. And I can imagine asking the PCs like, would you like to join me? And the PCs sure. say, yeah. <laughs> they go up to the floating citadel. And then they're asked, would you like to, in order to come up here, you're going to have to go through this unspeakable rite so that you can uh, live live amongst us and tolerate the, the temperature up here. Would you like to go through that? Right. The PC, yes, they go through this unspeakable <laughs> rite. Of course, the things that happen are so terrible, we can't even write about them. Right. Uh, but the thing that they don't tell them is that that unspeakable rite, it's a permanent change. And <laughs> now you're not actually able to live amongst your old world anymore. And I just I think that it would, it would be kind of a dick move, but it would also be really kind of fun because it's like, yeah, you, you guys agreed to this and you didn't right. ask. It can be reversed. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, DCC thing, but um <laughs> What uh so I'm I guess I'm interested I mean I guess you know your roots are in Dungeons and Dragons so it's it's a logical place to start but what were your sort of design considerations in terms of how closely you would hew to what had gone before and how much you needed to customize in order to make this setting and this flavor come through? That's a good question. Um, so uh, during my um, 
um, early development of it, I, I decided that, um, that there were enough games out there, old school, new school, whatever, that were generic in their presentation, that were intended to be applied to uh, different settings, genres, whatever. Um, I sort of decided with this game to go full bore into embracing the setting of Hyperborea, which meant um, subtle alterations throughout the whole uh, system instead of being a sort of a, uh, a generic um, fantasy rules setting that it would be directly applied to Hyperborea. So the classes, the spells, the magic items, all those things are crafted in such a way to um, embrace Hyperborea as a setting. But that being said, I look at, you know, Gygax's and Arneson's uh, creations as their own sort of mythology. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's on equal footing with all these uh, literary giants that we look at when you look at uh, Howard or Liber or Vance or any of those. I look at what I look at the creations of Gygax and Arneson, even though what they're doing is reskinning stuff themselves, they have done it to such a degree. And all, you know, of course, all the collaborators over the years have done it to such a degree that D and D has become its own mythology. Mm, and I think that that is uh, also becomes a, an equal influence though, in the way it's, you know, the way I look at things. Mm -hmm. And you actually worked with Gary later on in, uh, was it Castle Zagig or was that? Or, yes. Or, yeah, and you were the project manager on that? And uh, Well, I was his co-author for, co for the adventure, yes. Okay. And, and um, so I was, uh, I was, um, I was developing um, part of Eggsburg, which was the town, which you could say is sort of a analogous to Greyhawk outside of Castle Zagig, which is supposed to be Castle Greyhawk, mm -hmm. Gary's original dungeon with the serial numbers filed off. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had started off, um, I had gotten a job working for Gary on uh, that town development. And um, there were a whole bunch of us who were working on that project at the time. And for different, you know, personal and professional reasons, as these things often happen, uh, some people didn't make their deadlines or some people just flaked off and abandoned the project. And um, so... Uh, I took on some of these abandoned uh, projects for the city projects. And so after a time, uh, Gary asked me if I would help him write the main dungeon. So I was, so I was doing that with him until his untimely passing in 2008. And uh, so we only finished the first box set before uh, all, you know, all his contracts were, um, were canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and that's a story for another day, perhaps. <laughs> well, uh, but, but part of the overall process was it? Did you sign it uh, significantly different from the It was an evolution of what he was doing with uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, did you see a change in direction or just an evolution in terms of what? He oh, was absolutely. Doing? So yeah. you know, as hobbyists and being nostalgic for the old days, a lot of us tend to cling to what Gary was doing in the 70s and 80s. And we and we hearken back into that because it was a cultural movement. And it was great. And it's where for a lot of us, our attention was grabbed by this great hobby. 
So we tend to look back at those years a lot and we seem to sort of define what the hobby is by those years. But Gary wasn't static. Gary was ever-changing in his tastes and his opinions and what interests him. So there was definitely an evolution of uh, thought process that happened from when he originally drew these dungeons on graph paper in the early 70s to playtest a game called Dungeons and Dragons to what he envisioned it to be in his later years in life and the things that he had learned along the way. So yeah, it was definitely, you know, it was organic in its growth and, uh, and it was changing and it was, you know, my job to uh, develop and embrace the things that, uh, that he had come to do over the years and come to enjoy. But he was also open to my suggestions and a lot of stuff that I enjoyed made it in there too. So it was, you know, it was um, a very much a, um, a very pleasant uh, collaboration and it was, you know, it was one of the most uh, delightful periods of my life that I cherished that I had this opportunity to work with, you know, such a legendary figure. It was really uh, quite an honor. That's, that's amazing. And how much of that did then go around to then influence what you were doing with AS and SH in terms of your approach or your, you know, like, oh, this is something I never considered, you know, either from a rule standpoint or even creating setting flavor, uh, you know, how much did that carry forward into what you were doing next? Um, I would say it, the most that it, uh, for me was that I learned the process. It was almost like I did an apprenticeship under Gary and I was learning, you know, how to go about the daily grind of game design and how to basically, you know, um, attack these projects and really, um, you know, how much of it is, uh, your research and your literary influences and how much of it is game design. And just like, you know, just seeing how he went about things and how he uh, conducted himself on a personal level with all his fans and stuff like that. I learned a lot just, you know, observing him and being with him. Uh, so not just on the professional level, but on a personal level. And Jeff, you have anything? This is a rich, a rich vein. I'm not really sure, to, you know, where to go next on it. But <laughs> you know. sure, sure. I mean, we, yeah. we are starting to run out of time. Uh, yeah. We are in kind of the, the, the final portion of the episode. Um, but yeah, I think I think this is a very fascinating conversation. Um, also, Hyperborea is just an absolutely rich setting. Uh, both the Clark Ashton Smith version of it, and it seems the the the, the Greek um, the Greek root for what you're working with as well. Um, but like, yeah, like while I was like going through these books, I mean, there's so much here that feels so Dungeons and Dragons to me, you know, we've got geezes, we've got oozes, we've got dragons and, and giant snakes and giant spiders. And, um, I, re I really thought that whole like ice vapor turning into the giant cube would be a really cool high level spell that I'd like to see somebody work into a game at some point. Mm -hmm. But I guess, uh, while you were going through this and reading these again, was there like one or two things that really stuck out at you this time as like, Oh, this is something I would really like to work into a future game. Well, it's, it's tough because this, this, you know, I, this so many different things you could look at. But I, I do love the idea, you know, when we were talking about uh, the coming of the white worm, um, you know, if you had a, an adventure that was within the confines of an iceberg, 
you know, if you had something like that, it doesn't necessarily have to be inhabited by that God, mm -hmm. but it could be some other, you know, it could be a demon or it could be something else. And I think that there, uh, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, there's so much to draw from. It's like when you read Smith, which is probably why you wanted him to be a topic, even though he's not an appendix and author, when you read Smith, it's almost like you wish you had a notepad and a pencil next to you because you want to jot down stuff that you might want to use in your next game that you, that you run, you know, because it's, it's so rich with so much stuff. So you could really pick almost any story and come out. Like, you know, when you look at the, you know, the, the, the tale of, um, the, um, the tale of Satampraseros, you know, then, then you're talking about like, you know, what would make a great, you know, uh, a thief type adventure and that you, it, it, which could have sort of a liber type of feel. So there's really so many different directions that you can go with it. You know, it's so that, and that's the beauty of what this hobby that we enjoy so much is that it's really not, you know, like a video game that has these defined parameters, you know, it's only limits are our imaginations as referees and players. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting follow-up on that. Uh, it is, without getting into, I mean, there's always issues of, of comfort zone at the table, but one thing that we don't commonly bring up, we definitely have, you know, horror, we have, uh, you know, uh, can have extreme violence, but sort of this sort of decadence is a hallmark of Clark Ashton Smith. So this decadence and sardonic humor. How would you two go about bringing that to the table, again, with, you know, within limits, knowing your table, the comfort level at your table? Um, how, you know, but how could you create that feeling and that atmosphere? I think a lot of that comes down to your, um, experience as a dungeon master or a game referee, um, and how you go about pacing a session. And a lot of times, you know, take for example, in, uh, my game that I'm running now for my, uh, for my Tuesday night crew where their characters find themselves in this um, sort of uh, desert that's um, actually very much inspired by the Zothique story, The Abominations of Yondo. Um, and, uh, you know, describing what they see, what they smell, what they hear, but cannot, you know, but what cannot see, that they, they might hear some type, like if there's a, it could be a, a field of weird bulbous scarlet cacti often in the close distance and they can hear some type of chittering within there. They don't know the source of it. So then the, the players, their imagination start to evoke these different things that it might be. Um, the, the, uh, the, the desert being more like ash and soot instead of being like a desert sand of like a Sahara desert type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, or a Gobi desert or any of those deserts that we would, you know, know well from, you know, reading about uh, presenting them something that's weird. The, the desert is uh, uh, pocked with these craters in which star stones uh, may be discovered. And so through the description of setting, I think that you can really um, capture your player's imagination. And a lot of times, it's internalized by them and they're sort of filling in the gaps of what they think happened here or what they think might be going on. And, and that's all great fodder for, you know, campaign building. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you're known for your rich prose. So I think that's a, a, a good follow on And you use that, that same sort of vocabulary at the table, right. To, to sort of create the mood. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
That's great. So it's time to start wrapping this up. So Jeffrey, was there any kind of last thing you wanted to chat about before we go ahead and finish up this episode? Um, there was, um, you know, just keeping it, keeping it in with the whole um, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, one of the things, one a short passage that I wanted to read for you was something that Ray Bradbury said about Smith. That Ray Bradbury was you know, super impressed by Smith and who he was a lifelong fan. And uh, Bradbury said that Smith filled my mind with incredible worlds, impossibly beautiful cities, and still more fantastic creatures on those worlds and in those cities. And he did this largely through his gorgeous style and the courtly pacing of his sentences. Take one step across the threshold of his stories, Smith uh, Bradbury, uh, Bradbury declared, and you plunge into color, sound, taste, smell, and texture into language. That's yeah. great. That's beautiful. So, and that is a great note to end this on. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Jeffrey. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, how can they do that? Well, I'm on all the social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but you, but the, the main hub where you can find us is at www.hyperborea.tv. Perfect. Right. And Hoy, how can people find us? All right. If you want to find us, you can find email us at appendix n at at gmail dot com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at appendix underscore n, and you can also find us on MeWe and Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, do please rate us and review us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It helps people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yeah, so at Patreon slash Appendix and Book Club, that's where you can go and show us your support. Uh, and actually, just before this episode, we had our first virtual book club. We had Kurt Hockenberry. We sat down and chatted with him about the episode, and we recorded that, and it's now available. You can listen to it actually right now. It's already on the Patreon feed if you want to go ahead and listen to that. Uh, the ability to listen to the virtual book clubs and participate in the book clubs, uh, the virtual book clubs is specifically a patron, um, a patron privilege. So please go ahead and check us out there. We'd also love to give a quick shout out to a few of our patrons, uh, Stanley Reduski, uh, Andrew Sternick, Andy Action, Noah Green, Eric Johnson, William Souter. Thank you all so much for your support. And our next two episodes, episode 51, will be on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers. And episode 52 will be on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tainar of Pellucidar. So, Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you, you for so having much. me. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And everybody, thank you for listening. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>